Biden exploit Obama's legacy? What is Obama's legacy anyway? The Monica Perez Show starts now. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB every Saturday from 3 to 6. Here with what I think are uh, a unique take. I know it's a unique take on the things that I think are the stories of the week. A lot of times for me, the story of the week is not the story that's in the cable cycle 24-7. But sometimes uh, it is. Sometimes it's what my mom always says. Oh, it's just a slow news week. So is it a slow news week that Joe Biden throwing his hat in the ring is on the cable cycle 24-7? I don't know. And I could go for the low-hanging fruit, all the hilarious Joe Biden gaffes over the years, even his attempt to get out of that stuff this week by offering the worst apology I've ever heard or in line with it. Anytime an apology starts with, I am sorry you feel this way. It's that is not an apology. You should be sorry for what you did. And maybe he is, maybe he isn't, but I just feel like the gaffes are going to continue. So I would love it if he got the nomination. I think that would be really hilarious. And maybe that's why he's in there, because I never seriously thought that he would think he could win the Democratic nomination in the Me Too era I just don't think an old white guy is what they're after for their image. And I think that they can cultivate their image uh, more to their liking, further lurch to the left, all about identity and all that stuff. If they get another term of Trump, there is nothing like uh, nothing for generating reactions, for galvanizing your side than a really uh, provocative enemy. So I I think there are a lot of kind of peel the onion approaches to why Joe Biden might be running and what it might look like anywhere from just fighting a good fight in the Democratic nomination so that some socialist uh, person of intersectionality can vanquish him, maybe Stacey Abrams. Or maybe it's really to let Trump win again, or maybe it's just so that he can fundraise to his little group and then throw it to whoever wins the nomination. There are a lot of possibilities. Politics are like that. But one thing, one little meme that kept popping up that I I found interesting was this idea that Biden is trying to the, – the way he qualifies as being intersectional, which is like you can check more than one box, which seems to be uh, – to me, like that doesn't really have political content. It does on the left, but it goes back to this book I've read uh, – quoted. I've not read it a thousand times. It's hard to get through. But uh, quoted a thousand times, this ideology of tyranny where in order to get your eye off the ball of the of the concerted effort – to concentrate power at the top at the expense of your rights, liberties, and protections, that you are distracted by these petty infighting, this um, identity politics, this left-right thing, this red-blue thing, that when you really look at an expanding debt load or uh, a foreign policy of, um, you know, of, of... I'm not going to call it imperialism, but it's a foreign policy that serves kind of globalist foreign interests. This stuff continues apace, no matter what the different parties will tell you. 
their party stands for, no matter who's in any of the branches, those things, the welfare warfare super state grows and grows and grows. So I don't think it's uh, about so I think this identity stuff is a way to get us distracted from those real issues. But the way Biden accesses the intersectionality hot button is by having been in the White House with Obama, who was the first black president and therefore is this this hero. Uh, and the next kind of big hero would be a female of color or uh, a person of alternative sexual orientation, hopefully of color. So, like, that's how you just kind of up the ante there. And he doesn't really qualify in any of those categories, but he wants to exploit Obama's legacy in that regard. But but that's – but it, to, I don't know if I would even call that a legacy. I mean, that makes Obama someone who broke through a glass ceiling. Um, but is it – is it his legacy? Now, if that now now race might be an element of his legacy. I got a tweet. Um, I got a tweet when I asked, like, what is Obama's legacy? And uh, AJ said it's that he worsened race relations. It's that the media accused every Obama critic of being a racist. And now the media accuses Trump and every Trump supporter of being a white nationalist. That actually goes to how Biden, uh, how he launched his campaign this week was with, uh, he contributed, a uh, used a big part of his announcement video talking about what happened in Charlottesville as a defining moment in our modern history and all this kind of stuff. So he's playing that card. He's definitely trying to exploit it. But I would say Obama didn't make things better as we had all hoped. I mean, really, truly, sincerely uh, hoped that he would help us heal old wounds of racial divide. But he instead uh, definitely made them worse, I feel like. And Eric Holder was a big part of that. Uh, and it's just cynical politics, in my opinion, to keep people divided against each other and based on things that you cannot change about yourself or the other person, like the color of your skin. You cannot change that. And and that shouldn't be a bone of contention. We need to focus on the policy stuff. So when we look at Obama's legacy, I want to think that, like, what really was his legacy from a po political point of view? What policies did he put in place that uh, that did change this country. He said he wanted to fundamentally change this country. And it's funny because in Biden's announcement video, he talks about Trump fundamentally changing this country. And uh, and I feel like, well, if it was in need of, you know, he, he implies that it was not in need of fundamental change. So I found that a contradiction with kind of what Obama stood for. Now, obviously, the way Biden was saying Trump is changing this country is not the way Obama meant when he said he wanted to fundamentally tra change the country. But did he do it? Like, what did Obama do to to move his own football forward? And what did he do that, for better or worse, did change change this country, have an impact on it? And then, you know, that made me think about some of the stuff he did via executive order could be reversed, could be erased. So it's not so it was possible for Trump to kind of walk back a lot of what I think people would call Obama's legacy. 
So, uh, but th- that, those, these are just service things like the Paris Accord, the Iran deal. These are things that uh, that because they were put in place through kind of, uh, you know, Obama's leadership and could be dismantled through Trump's, I don't think that's going to qualify as legacy. So what is the big legacy? The Obamacare thing, obviously, big legacy. But the mandate has been dismantled. So so what is the next step of that legacy? Is it the true socialized medicine? Would that really be Trump's legacy? They said Obamacare was a Trojan horse that was meant to fail. Uh, and, you know, I feel like that that is often the case with these policy policies that are feel like they're a big victory for a fringe and then uh the pendulum swings a couple of times and there it is a part of your of your basic fabric and i think a few of obama's legacy issues are like that so i'm going to tell you what i mean by that and i want to know what you think are obama's legacies and maybe uh what trump's legacy might be some of trump's legacy is walking back obama's legacies but some things are his own so I'm going to take off what I think are their legacies. I want to know what you have to say. 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. And uh, my producer, Binkley's here. Hi, Binkley. How are you doing? I'm great. I, I'm like Trump. I feel young and vibrant. <laughs> I feel like a young man. I, I am a young man. So young. <laughs> yes, he is. Well, I always thought it was weird that his, his like inaugural song, like his ballroom dance with Melania, was... The end is near, and now we face the final curtain. Like I just thought, like for an older guy, that's the worst, the worst thing. <laughs> Wasn't it? I think he was the first, the oldest president to be inaugurated to a first term. I, I think so. Yeah. And Biden's trying to beat that. Yes, he would beat that. He would. Uh, I mean, how likely do you think it is that Biden could could become president? Like they're giving him a lot of props. I, I don't. I don't think it's likely, but he showed by the way he introduced on a, with the Charlottesville thing that it's, he's going to make it about he, – he's presenting himself almost as an intersectional candidate by the way he launched his campaign, which yeah. is kind of crazy. Yeah, I I just – the way I think about his prospects is like I'm so cynical about how – voting event works and even just if they get it down to like a county just what i think that the the issue it's like the that tail wagging the dog they look at the issues they pull people to see where the line is where they'd vote on one side or the other and they all you know in, in normal political uh situations and probably him in the trying to get the democratic nomination is they try to put their where they are at that dividing line, so they could literally divide all the counties, whatever. And then, then what the purple places, the swing places, are the places where it's too close to tell where they're going to shake out at that watershed. So, if you wanted to kind of fix the election or whatever, or rig it, you would just have to go to those places, which is why Ohio had so much scrutiny in the Bush era and Florida because those were. Like uniquely purple. Now there's a lot more purple, but at the time, so so I look at this stuff as 
I don't think like, what will people choose? Would they like him? I think what is on the agenda of the people who really manipulate this stuff and would they want him? They would, they want Biden for some reason. And I really cannot think of a reason they would want Biden. I think, I think what the way that what's moving the dial these days politically and even ideologically and in the media is this extreme conflict. And that is part of this ideology of tyranny. They get their ratings, they get their people, they get their co-op, they get, they make it look like they are highly supported. People are galvanized. They vote, they contribute, but the different, the impact is minimal, but they, but they can't get that, that feeling of conflict, that galvanizing spirit without, somebody who provokes the other side and and i just don't think biden would do that i think the day the centrist is over i agree yeah i just so we'll see how it unfolds because you never know these people are they are way ahead of me like i try to peel the onion a little bit but there's always something that i'm like oh i didn't think of that (laughs) yeah and this is like the third candidate that has been like the leader so far you know, it was yes, Kamala they, Harris. Yeah, they roll them out one by one. It totally seems like a uh, a marketing, like an overall holistic marketing campaign. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. I want to get to your calls, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK, or you can tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. Monica Perez. Everything you do is being watched by some all-seeing eye. On News 95.5 at AM 750, WSB. We are talking about Biden throwing his hat in the ring. And uh, I'm when they say he's going to ride on Obama's coattails, I ask, what are Obama's coattails? What was Obama's legacy? 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. I'm going to Paul in Cobb. Hi, Paul. You're on with Monica. Thank you. Uh, I think one of Obama's best legacies was giving cellular phones to the people in the food stamp program because there are 47 million people on food stamps of all types, all races, all ages. And I was down at the food stamp office near uh, Agnes Scott the other day, and people can now talk to other government agencies like the public health departments and get vaccinations. They can make appointments with um, uh, the, the VA hospital, uh, they, they can do a lot of things over the phone that they may not be able to do. They may not have a computer handy because of their low income. Yeah, or their- no, and I actually have an alternative interpretation of giving cell phones to kids, to uh, these people, is that if the poor people don't have cell phones, don't have a technology, they would be the only people who were not constantly propagandized all the time. It's what I refer to recently as the Hispanic paradox, the Hispanic paradox, where uh, maybe I should. Are we taking a break, Rachel? Um, let me talk about the Hispanic paradox after the break. I also want to talk about um, you're hitting all the hot button points uh, with the vaccines. And I'm going to get to all of it. And I'm also going to tell you what Brian Kemp did that I think recently is in this has the same motivation as obama phone so after the break i'll get to all that 404-872-0750 1-800-WSB talk this is monica perez monica perez and now for something completely different on news 95.5 at am 750 wsb i am your libertarian voice on wsb saturdays from three to six 
We are talking about Joe Biden threw his hat in the ring. I wonder what his prospects are. I wonder what his real purpose is. You know, I always at least peel the onion, if not go down the rabbit hole and mix metaphors every time. So, but they're just so good. Then nothing says it like your, uh, like your, your good natural metaphor. So, my question, though, like as I think about what Biden, if you just play it straight, what would Biden bring to the White House? What is he? What image is he? What platform? What is he trying to bring? It's. It's a, it would be the continuation of the Obama White House. And what does that mean? What is Obama's legacy? And by that same token, what is Trump's legacy? So a lot of his legacy seems to be just rolling back Obama's legacy. So I want to hear what you think about the, the what was Obama's legacy? What what do you think Trump's legacy is going to be? 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. We got a call before the break from Paul, which I could not. Uh, he rattled off quite a few things. I did not have time to take off one by one he said uh one of the best legacies of obama was giving people cell phones who are online for food stamps and i don't know if it was exactly one-to-one correlated but maybe it was and for me you know i'm skeptical i don't look at these things as i don't what the thing that obama promised to be and he most definitely was not but his promise was he was going to be the benevolent socialist leader that the left believes in and the right does not believe in. So the left, it's not that the, I actually think that a lot of people on the right wouldn't be so opposed to socialism, which I realized and discussed last weekend is basically a religion. It's a religion and not like the way environmentalism is a religion, but the welfare state is mixing church and state by by creating a moral imperative at at the government level. So I think that even the right would kind of compromise and be like, okay, I'll, I'll let them do that. I'll consent to, to government charity. But they know or believe that it's not possible because power corrupts and government power is always the power at the end of a gun. It's just not possible. And Obama, and after seeing so many people on the left who really were corruptible, were not sincere, the idea behind Obama is that he was supposed to be the benevolent socialist that the left believes in. That's where the hope, the hope and change thing was was about. I think that's what people wanted to see with that slogan. So I, but I look at both food stamps and the cell phones as serving. The military industrial complex, because food stamps is an agricultural, it's in the agricultural bill, or at least that's where it started. It might still be there. It's a way to sell food to for the government to subsidize the corporations that sell food. It's in the agricultural bill. It's not, it's not a welfare bill. So, uh, and then the phones to me, if imagine this, like the greatest challenge of my life right now is keeping screen time down for my kids. I actually just tweeted an article from last night saying Apple is systematically purging apps that will help reduce or control iPhone usage. It's very hard. I've noticed it with YouTube. It's very hard to control these screens. And what's coming through them is pure propaganda. 
it's it's at a certain level from not only the addictive the addiction in itself the dopamine cycle in itself but the content that's being pushed into these kids heads are it's pure propaganda it's simplistic it's emotional it's designed for young minds it's super messed up and if you had a whole body of people the poor of this country the 50 million people 47 million people Paul identified on food stamps Without phones, could you imagine the power to think and reason and see through the BS and not be in a constant state of fear and vulnerability that those people would have? Then you could really have a revolution, whether you like it or not, the type of revolution it would be. But you would be truly empowering by not de-educating people. That's where it would be. And... uh so I feel like the whole the, – the cell phone thing is in itself an attack on on people's minds, and they're just thoroughly propagandized. And then with, recently I just read that Jack, Jack Kemp, Brian Kemp signed into law a way to get uh, more Internet access into rural areas and that uh, – it it just in passing in this article it mentions that the, what he signed lets telecom firms set up 5G te- technology equipment on public land now i think the feds passed a law requiring that local uh, municipalities not interfere with the expansion of 5G this is something that is not being discussed but when i see kemp pushing internet into the rural areas and 5G and all that i think you know just in time for the election the 2020 election This, to me, is above parties. They're making sure that people are propagandized instantaneously at all times. And that's scary. That's That, to me, is not a good. It's a bad. And Paul threw in about it makes it easier for people to access vaccines, which is another, you know, thing that's questionable. Who who really, why are they pushing so hard for that? Why are the measles things all over the news all the time? It seems sinister to me, or at least suspect, you want to know who's benefiting from that. Is it just to sell vaccines? Like, what is that? And um, and you could say it's honest to goodness, good faith, the government is being good and pure and has nothing but the best intentions. But this would be the only time that was true. So you you simply have to look into it as something that might have an ulterior motive and and, it, and that kind of thing needs to be scrutinized, constantly scrutinized, because otherwise you let it uh, you let it get out of control. And even if they are acting in good faith right now, the only way you can keep them acting in good faith, because then if you have like a big program that makes a lot of money, someone's going to hijack that. Somebody's going to seek election or seek that position just to hijack that low hanging fruit. And that's when. I start to think, you know, that's that's why you need that. You don't want to trust anyone, even the guy you like. So if Obama's legacy is is more propaganda, uh, um, I, I could be read either way. So let's keep going with that. Uh, I am going to go to um, I'm going to take him in order of how long you've been holding. So I'm going to go to Kim and Decatur. Hi, Kim. You're on with Monica. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I I have a couple things that I think would be good uh, bets for Trump's legacy. Uh, First of all, the tax reform. 
I think that, um, and not only for just uh, private citizens, but I think I think the corporate aspect of it, allowing some of these companies, these companies with offshore um, operations, to bring some money back into the um, country at a at a lower rate. I think that ha- that's helping the economy stay um, energized. Yeah, that's um, actually I, think, I hadn't thought about that. I thought about the tax cut thing, but I I would be interested in how you know, I'd like to see how that's shaking out. That's a good one. Yeah. Right. And then the other thing is uh I think uh sensible deregulation is a is going to be a, a legacy of his too. Very good. I hadn't thought about that. I'm so skeptical about the deregulation thing, though. Like, I am I am not for regulation at all. I believe that regulation is used by corporations oh, to weapon. keep... Yeah, right. And regulatory capture. And, and I look at, like, the FDA, uh, and I think we've, we've got all these drug problems, but there's a massive government apparatus at the helm of regulation and all that. What if we didn't have faith in those administrative bodies and actually just started being like, I don't really want to take that stuff, you know, looked into it ourselves. Maybe the the death toll would go down instead of up. So I don't, so the whole regulatory regime kind of um, keeps me skeptical. And, and then when you have the regime completely intact and then you start fiddling with it, you can really use that like the trade deals. You can really use that to benefit people who are your political allies or stuff like that. So I didn't make a study of the regulatory stuff, but I think you're right. It will be part of Trump's legacy. I don't think uh, there's any disputing that. Good. Very excellent calls, Kim. Thank you. I'm going to Tariq in Lithonia. Tariq, why can't I click on your, on your name? Rachel, will you help me click on Tariq's name? Line three. I'm enjoying your show. And let me be very brief because I, what you are posing is very complex, but I think history will show that Obama's legacy, and there are a lot of different levels that we, you know, it's really not uh, opportune to go into all of them on a brief comment on the radio. But in general, he has this, did things, a lot of his actions to try to accelerate the goals of the collective, whereas Trump is putting a lot of things in place to try to no combination of stop the progress of the collective side reaching their goals, but also some things that are of benefit to the country. And the collective, whether it's here in the United States or the world, and to be honest, I've never heard anybody say this, but as I study, I'm really suspicious that Obama might be a current member of the Worldwide Council of one of the major organizations collective which I don't know if I want to say on the radio because most people aren't really that familiar with it. But um, Well, I only know <laughs> about, like, the CFR, the World Economic Forum. Well, well, all of those, see, the collective, like, in a sense, the Democratic Party is becoming more and more like, like a modern Jacobin movement out of France, which is all still part of the collective that it really started with the Illuminati. Oh, like, no, but so, yeah, I am familiar with that. I right, you don't so, think is there an opposition to that in your mind? Like, because the way you're talking about Trump fighting, he's certainly not. I don't think he's Batman. He surely has people behind him, right? There must so, be a well, counter. You mean the course. opposition to the what the collectives? Well, yeah, in general, that's what I'm asking. You, 
in general, you can look at history, and we don't have time to go through all the details now, but in general, the collective, they are for the state, and you got different forms of it. You know, that's one reason why they attack religion. Uh, they they claim, like in the United States now, they call it anti, uh, anti- Antifa. Antifa. Anti-fascist. Really, they're the ones acting like the fascists, right? Oh, yeah. And that's, that's what the collectives do. That's what totalitarian government, and the collective really includes that really from that you you got Marxism, communism, Nazism, fascism, and so you know even uh one of the original members of the Worldwide Council was Benjamin Franklin, and you had Thomas Paine and Lafayette, and later on you had Benjamin Franklin and another, and even Abraham Lincoln almost a century later, and to me. No one's ever said this, and, and quite naturally, the news media, even if they're aware, they would never say this. I'm not sure if I even think it's possible, but Obama, by staying in Washington to try to be in the immediate proximity and have hands-on control of the collective's efforts and the way he prances around uh, a lot of parts of the world, whether it's him or Kerry, all of them are trying to do the same thing. And, and, and there are a lot of different levels to this. That's why, you know, that's why the Democrats, they ignore a lot of the things that people that are on the collective side do, whether it's uh, sexual or whatever else. They, they just look the other way because they're on their team. All right, Tariq, I have, to, I have to stop you because I have to take a break. But here's the thing. Uh, I really want to pick your brain. I think we should have – I've had before Liberty on the Rocks where I tell on the radio and people – like. It's not like a million people come, but I think we've got to just, uh, you've got to, I've just got to ask you more questions, but I can't do it on the airtime. Um, are you in the real Atlanta? Real quickly. Yeah, go ahead, go. still goes back to, like, you were concerned about internet. Yeah, the, the masses need internet everywhere, but the key is you can only be affected by what you, you're you affected by your experiences in life and your knowledge. And one reason the collective has been so uh, influential the last 100 years, and it really accelerated with Woodrow, uh, Woodrow Wilson and uh, progressives, right, is because of lack of knowledge. And that's the key. Yeah, Internet's all right. It's just a tool. It's just like a gun. Guns don't shoot and kill people. It's the people that pull the trigger. All right, right. I got to end on that. I got to take a break. Okay. But, Tariq, you got to keep calling. I could just pick your brain. And Binkley has got all this stuff on, on Antifa that he's just dying to share. So oh, you're going to launch us into a, a whole new discussion. Thanks, Tariq. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. It's like everything I've been brought up to believe was all made of bull****. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We are... Always in the rabbit hole. Tariq just called, and I was I'm fascinated by when people tell me stuff that's way down there that I don't know or I never heard. Like he was referring to the worldwide collective movement, and I don't know if that's just a blanket term or if it's for real a specific thing. I'm going to have to Google that after the show. And uh, I want to keep getting to your calls. Bonnie thinks that Biden is a stooge for, I'll tell you after the break, and when we talk to Bonnie, and Anna thinks Obama's legacy is to make America fundamentally dishonest. I have to know why she thinks that, and I'm sure she has some good reasons, and I want to know what you think. Are Obama's legacies, even Trump's legacy? 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. You can tweet at me, at Monica Perez Show. 
This is your last chance. After this, there is no turning back. You take the blue pill. The story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to be. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB every Saturday from 3 to 6. Giving you my opinion on the... On the agenda and the underlying principles behind most of the stuff that's in the news, and this is no exception, I'm talking about uh, Biden, Biden's run. Why is he running? What can we expect from that? And uh, do you really want to run on the coattails of Obama's legacy? What is, this is what I'm asking you, what is Obama's legacy? And what will Trump's legacy be? Just to roll back Obama's legacy, we've gotten some great answers on that question. If you want to hear this show from the beginning, commercial-free, WSB very generously allows us to post it. My producer, Binkley, and I, uh, we do also do a podcast. So if you want to hear this show, commercial-free, we post it Wednesday mornings on uh, the Prop Report, like as in the propagandareport.com. And on Thursday mornings, we have um, our own podcast, which we also post commercial free. But uh, I solicited calls about this Obama legacy, uh, and I'm interested in what you have to say, or Trump's legacy, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. First, I have to say, I got a call at the break, and I lost the call, so maybe she'll call back. I think it was Debbie saying, I had mentioned in passing about Brian Kemp signed a some laws uh, a couple of which promoted internet services in um, in some rural areas, uh, Dalanega, and maybe I'm pronouncing that wrong. I've never been there, but anyway, they. Oh, but Debbie called and said they need it out there. Nobody's providing it, and the internet is a. I mean, it's just essential to function these days, and I totally agree with that. And I and I didn't really dig into it. Came up in response to another call I had, I didn't really dig into that legislation. Normally I would, uh, before I would like throw it out there. But, uh, but yes, I totally agree. It's absolutely critical and you cannot function or be plugged in without it. That is absolutely true. It's, but it's that fact that kind of, um, uh, that disturbs me is that when people talk about, well, should we should fund government research or uh, that kind of thing, tech and subsidized tech. I see that as what generates unsustainability, just like depressing interest rates or making interest alone tax deductible, that kind of thing. When you stimulate all this investment in research that would not that doesn't respond to normal market forces, you're actually putting extra push in there that usually has the result of reducing, for example, the cost of capital over labor. So it's very bad for labor when artificial incentives to invest in labor-replacing technology are uh, put in place by the government. But I feel like with the Internet, too, like they generate this, they invent it, then you have to have it in order to engage in the marketplace, if you want to kind of get apocalyptic about it, 
you you have to use it to engage in the marketplace. And the more you get to where you have to depend on the grid for anything from food to transportation to the ability, you know, they eliminate your ability to have any kind of independence by making uh, the requirements for economic interactions dependent on on infrastructure that is completely outside your control. So once they put the internet as the only way you can make a living, and then that internet is on a framework, a platform that could say, all right, we don't like your political views. You're cut off. I mean, they could literally starve you for, for your political views. And this is not a fantasy. This is stuff that is that you can see the signs of coming down. So I'm sorry, Debbie, that I broke, that I jumped the gun. Um, I would love it if you call back and, uh, tell me more about that because I can't read it while I'm on the air. 404 872 1-800-WSB-TALK. And I am going to hit some calls right now. Thank you so much for uh, your patience. In the order of how long you've been waiting, I'm going to go to Anna. Anna, you are on with Monica. Oh, thank you, Monica. When Obama said he was going to fundamentally change America, he meant it, and it went right over our heads. He and Hillary were schooled in the Alinsky School, uh, which is a modern version of communism. And communism is fundamentally dishonest. The messages were always dishonest. The government style is dishonest. The people were fundamentally of a, of a dishonest mentality. Um, communism uh, was never exposed after World War II because we were allies with Russia. We did expose Nazism. And uh, on the note of your last caller there, Treg, he, he was just very right on and uh, very well read. Um, Solzhenitsyn from Russia wrote a book back in the 70s. He got a Nobel Prize. He is that the Gulag that because, Archipelago or is that not him? Exactly. Oh. Gulag Archipelago. Yeah, <laughs> you can find a condensed version. And, yeah. and somewhere around page 80 or so, he, he explains that um, if something like that is never exposed, it will be buried and rise again. And that is what is happening in America. That's what's happened. That's what Obama brought to us. And and like you, I'll be a libertarian and choose whoever I think is the right guy for the country. But right now, the Democratic leadership in every message, every tactic, every trick is so fundamentally dishonest that it is scary that people um, absolutely just don't see it. Communists used to use the term useful idiots, you know. We've heard that. But if you look and read, like our last caller did, also they use the term useful innocent. And that is so much nice. of, of the Democratic popular you know, uh, people who... Yeah. I have a quick question for you, Anna. Yeah, right. Can you give me a one-sentence definition of communism as you see it in the context of what you're talking about? Right. It is control by an elite group. It is just control over people. It is the opposite of what America was founded on. We were founded on the dignity and power is it the opposite, of the individual. Is it the opposite of what America is? America... <laughs> America right now is confused and and split on purpose uh, into racial camps and 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 all kinds of nonsense to take away from the rights and dignity and power of the individual. And and by the way, Christianity was built on that too. You know, I mean, Christianity liberated um, the individual person. And 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 look look what that did in Europe. You know, literature, music, architecture. I actually, you know, I never heard anybody really. You know, I never read it. I just observed when I looked at like comparative cultures just in my 
casual reading of like how China was such a big technologically advanced society, but it never really made the progress that we made later, even though you could say they they had a, an intellectual advantage. But I always thought because you had the church in competition with the state, the individual understood his or her individual worth and and was had to be given some freedom if you wanted them to choose between who you were going to let tax you, basically, the tithe versus the tax thing. I've been thinking so much since my Easter show, and I, I have a lot of calls, so I'm going to skip, but I just absolutely love uh, how your, you know, your analysis and your articulation of this stuff. I hope please call uh, often because I want to hear more of it. Thank you so much. I'm going to go to uh, Bonnie. Bonnie, you are on with Monica. I love your show, Monica. It's the first time I ever called, so I'm a little nervous. I I just was going to talk about Biden. I I just don't see him as uh, a sincere candidate. I don't think he really wants it. I agree with that. Somebody's pushing him, I think. Uh, he doesn't have much to say. He's, you know, bless his heart, he's a, not the bright bulb. <laughs> what do you think could the purpose possibly be for this? For I him or whoever's he, pushing him? He's, somebody's paying him to be out there and feel out that uh, Obama um, era and to see what kind of response they get from uh, the public and how much they really want him back, you know, because the left has gone so left and Obama appeared to be moder- more moderate. That's interesting. So it's like a litmus test for what's out there because Bernie is so left and then you have Biden to kind of test the waters or even I was thinking maybe drain the coffers, maybe pick the pockets of people who have hope for a centrist. And then there are options of what you can do with the money you raise if you drop out. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. And and that's why I I don't think Obama is backing him. And because I think that uh, Michelle is going to jump out at the last minute and possibly has has a chance at that. That that may be true. That's interesting that you would say that. That's um, when uh, Michelle Obama popped up at the Grammys. My mom, who has some serious wisdom after 90 years, said, oh, she's running for president. I was like, I don't know. She's like, oh, that's why she's there. She's running for president. So... All right, 75% of the time, my mother is right about stuff like that. So let's, uh, sorry, mom's listening. 99% of the time, my mother is right. <laughs> so let's see what uh, what what comes out of that Michelle Obama thing. Thanks so much for the call, Bonnie. I'm going to take a quick break and uh, still hang on, Will, Jerry, and uh, we, at the bottom of the hour, we're going to get into some of these clips that uh, kind of, Compare and contrast Biden and Trump and some of uh, Binkley's Antifa reveals will probably trigger you. 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Still interested in your opinion of Trump uh, and Obama's legacies. Or you could tweet at me at Monica Perez Show. Monica Perez. Maybe it's something really cool that I don't even know about, you know. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. We are back. Let me 
I can I definitely have time for a call, and uh, I'm going to go to Will in Dahlonega. Is that how I pronounce it? I got it wrong. I'm a, that, yeah, it's Dahlonega. I'm actually in Saltee, not far from Dahlonega. Okay. Uh, okay, so you're telling me, what do you got to say to me? I'm saying I totally agree with you on, um, you know, the government trying to provide Internet to rural areas. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a scheme. There, there is no such thing as no Internet areas. It doesn't exist. Uh, I've lived up here in the North Georgia mountains my entire life, and, if you, and I run several businesses. And if we need Internet access, we get satellite or we get an air card uh, from one of the mobile carrier networks. And, and you get it if you need it. And when, when you know when you need uh, true high-speed Internet, you, you know, you should move to those areas. You shouldn't dictate that the business move to you by government subsidies. It, it just, it's ridiculous. It's a joke. Oh, that's a, that's a great point. And actually, for me, I, not only am I a libertarian because I believe in individual liberties, but I do truly believe that the like the pricing mechanism, what gets people to do things to provide services or products or whatever, the the pricing mechanism reflects perfectly the demand versus the cost of it. So if it's not being provided, maybe it makes no sense unless there are government barriers to that stuff being provided out there. If it's not permitted, then you should take down those barriers. But promoting it, yeah, I feel like why... Yeah, it's like flood insurance. Why subsidize flood insurance for flood areas? People are choosing to live there. It's, it's ridiculous. You know, out in the desert, the government uh, melts the mountains so they can run canals down into cities and, and give them water. And you're paying 10 times the price, or actually the government is. Uh, so it, it's the exact same thing with the Internet. It, it just, you know, for them to say that, you know, and I live in these rural areas. I would I would love to have 100 megabytes pumped in my house. Uh, but as a libertarian as well, it, it's it's stupid. You know, I'll, I'll just have a satellite installed or an air card or I'll, I'll make it work. I don't need the government, nor should I want the government to subsidize, you know, my paycheck to support somebody else's business. It, it's uh, it's a prop. It's a scam. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. And I think uh, to... Yeah, you can't. the The thing about the cities that's an interesting parallel as well is that if the more we subsidize growth through governments, the more you get what they call unsustainability. What they call pollution. These things have their natural barriers. They'll stop. It's like you build the highways, build the airports, and then complain about using fossil fuels, and then you want to control that. It's the centralization of the whole scheme. But you've gave me a lot of food for thought, Will. Maybe I'll come back with a little more. And Jerry, please hang on. Jerry is is absolutely going to talk about my most hot-button issue. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. This will not stand, you know. This aggression will not stand, man. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on WSB, Saturdays from 3 to 6. I just had a call from Will about the Internet, um, the bill that, the law that Brian Kemp signed this week to get Internet into rural areas. And he lives up there. 
And he said it is a scam. If you need it, you can get a satellite or there are alternatives. It's not it's not as good as a big city skyscraper or whatever, but there are alternatives. And the point I uh, failed to make was this is the essence of what I consider to be the, the libertarian argument uh, or even just the individualist argument or the the non-collective argument is that there are always substitutes to everything. And this is why I don't like it where you remove your ability to feed yourself by getting increasingly enmeshed in this web, this grid, this interdependency. The fact is, what do you need? Food, water, clothing, shelter. That's really what you need. Food, water, clothing, shelter. And those things are abundant. You can make them yourself. It's very easy. There is no scarcity. Air, I guess. So, yes, you've got pollution. You've got ownership and everything. But we have this the rule against perpetuities, the ownership goes away after you die, basically. And in this country, especially, where we don't do 99-year leases, we don't have this law of entail, I think it's called, where, like, the first son gets everything and it just keeps all the property tied up. We don't have that. You can have a little piece of land. You can plant some potatoes in the back. I'm just saying, if you get down to the basics of it, there are always substitutes for everything. Then when somebody asks you, well, who will build roads? You can think, okay, why would anyone build roads? Well, a guy would build a road from a shopping center to an apartment complex. Why? Because he owns the shopping center or he owns the apartment complex and he wants to sell that, that, that rent those places out. So there are always substitutes to everything, which is why I get so nervous when I read things like UN Habitat One, which says you can own private property, just not land. Land is the only thing you need to be able to own. Land is the only thing you need access to. You can get everything you need from the land. And that may be why I believe Patrick Henry said if you if you withdraw the political power from or if people stop being farmers, you'll lose this liberty. And it, it could very well be because you lose the confidence that you can be an individual. So I knew Will had sparked some thoughts in my mind. And here is Jerry with my absolute biggest economic fear. Jerry, you are on with Monica. Hey, Monica. How you doing? Good. How you doing? Good. Enjoying the show, as, as always. You have a new listener, my son, Ty. He's 13, well on his way to uh, thinking the right way. And so I called to talk about what no one is talking about, which is our national debt. Um, you know, I'd like to make two points. First of all, Congress is broken, period. Uh, without term limits, we're never going to fix our problems. We're just not. The national debt is now almost $22 trillion. Um, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, projected, depending on where you look, to be upside down by 2025. And by 2032, best I can tell, we will pay more money in interest on the national debt than we pay on our entire military. It's so important to uh, identify that we are in an unusually low interest rate environment. And I think the debt is over $22 trillion by now. 
probably by the end of the show it will be if it's not already. You know, <laughs> yeah, and then up, yeah, if you if the interest rates go up two million like, a minute, two million a minute. Think about that. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's you million can't, dollars a minute. You can't wrap your mind around the size of this debt. It's not something that can be repaid, and it's going up all the time. It's not stopping, and that to me is the biggest subversion of this country there is. Well, I, I think when you get into the trillions, people just can't comprehend that right. number. I mean, all of the real estate in the United States is worth like twelve trillion. We is it? I've looked at stuff trillion. like that. I think like all the wealth in the world is like seventy trillion, and I mean, it's just if you get into those, it's just monumental numbers. It's much, much larger than all our production. And the only so people here- who are really signing up for it. Funny enough, I'm not trying to open the immigration question, but the immigrants are the only ones who are voluntarily signing up for this. We have done this in the name of our children without their consent. It's taxation without representation. And then the people come in. I don't know what they think they're signing up for a job right now for sure. But the future burden of this, it will either be bankruptcy or enslavement. I think you better hope you have some land then. But they would just take it. You, <laughs> you know, know what I mean? I mean? They're they're after yeah. the long guns. They're after the stuff that you could defend your land. They don't care so about the stuff can't... that makes you a target like a handgun. They care about the long guns. Right. So we can't fight back. It's That's what I think. You I know, call it... the, the yeah. immigrants, you know, since you mentioned it, you know, <laughs> Trump Trump could take this immigration thing and the in the um the national debt thing and run with it. You know, Democrats are saying we're going to give health care to all. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. We spend several hundred billion dollars a year taking care of people that aren't supposed to be here. I'm all for coming here, but you have to come the right way. And for Congress to sit there and say, well, we're not going to give you six billion for the wall, but we're let we'll let the United States spend 200 billion taking care of people that aren't supposed to be here. It doesn't make any sense. I until did, we fix, yeah. I th- I, yeah. you know, finish. I was just saying until we fix Congress, yes. the very people we see on the news every day, we got to have term limits. We've got to get rid of the lobbying. You know, when you're a congressman and you can be there for 50 years and retire with a hundred million dollars, how does that happen exactly? That is sick. I, I actually, I that I haven't settled on uh, a policy solution. I don't know about term limits. I feel like I, I if I were to see one change that I think would make the difference, I would say I would take away the power of the Supreme Court to adjudicate the constitutionality of legislation and and make it perforce state nullification where the states could just not enforce congressional overreach. That's why I think they created the FBI and all that, the Department of Justice, to enforce congressional overreach because the states otherwise, when the Constitution was implemented, would be responsible for enforcing all these laws. And the debt is a function of laws, in my opinion, that violate the Tenth Amendment. Any of the police powers, welfare, health care, all that stuff is has been, even the Supreme Court says the Tenth Amendment puts all that stuff at the state level. And when you say the interest will be more than we spend on the military, I don't I think our military budget, our defense budget is way too big. However, I think our federal budget should be almost 
should be limited almost totally to just the what's necessary for national defense, which would be a smaller number than even that is now. So we wouldn't have a debt problem if we stuck to the constitutional limits of congressional power, in my opinion. Uh, thank you so much for the call, Jerry. And you should tell your son, Ty, if he tweets. I don't know if you allow him on that uh uh, the Twitter verse can get it a tad vulgar, although my feed never does. So if he wants to tweet at me at Monica Perez show, I would be happy to uh, interact with him. I love that. I love it. Uh, Twitter's my favorite platform for as long as they allow me to function on it. I enjoy it. Then I guess we go over to Gab. Hopefully that that's going to, they, they are fighting the good fight at Gab. I have to say I should, I, I am on it, but, uh, and by that, I mean, Gab is fighting the fight to have freedom of speech. And not, I'm not opining on what is imputed to them as their political bent or any of that. But they do fight the censorship that has affected me personally, for starters. Uh, so I want to, I want to get to Binkley, my producers here. You and I have talked about uh, in the context of Biden's announcement. Biden said. Uh, he basically framed his announcement, as you said earlier in the show, around Charlottesville or the race question, whatever. It's it. I don't want to get into. I don't identity. want to rehash it. Why? Like identity politics. Yes, but the the Charlottesville thing to me, what happened in Charlottesville, from what I recall, and I was on the air as it was unfolding, so you probably heard. Like even Trump's reaction, I believe, was during my show, his initial reaction. There was a permitted protest uh, or rally or activist uh, permitted to uh, object to the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue. Mm -hmm. And uh, there was unpermitted counter protests that seemed to have escalated things. But even the original, I believe the permitted protest or one of the one of the people on the right, I think it was called Unite the Right. Had an organizer, Jason Kessler, I think that was the guy's name, who uh, was had a funny history. It made him look like he was an agent provocateur or whatever. So a dialectic emerged where people really took side on Charlottesville, really took one interpretation or the other, depending on where their preconceived notions lay. And this has been exploited ever since by uh, especially the left. But I, I think it's worth taking a little time, especially since Tariq earlier in the show brought up Antifa, to talk about what, who Biden was championing in his announcement to run. And uh, I just think it's funny that he's going to get away with it and Trump was not, or whatever Trump did it seemed to me this question of moral equivalence should be put to Biden over Trump. And mm -hmm. I want to I want to pull that out. So we've got a couple of clips for you on that and a little color on Antifa, Antifa. <laughs> uh, but I, I think we should take a break first. And I'm still open to hearing your views on anything we've talked about, but uh specifically what Obama's legacy would be if Biden were to pick that up uh, and what Trump's legacy would be in the context maybe of what he's he's I think, you know, I got a tweet. I'll read the tweet to you about 
uh, it, it'll surprise you of Trump's legacy in the context of Obama's legacy. I'll get to that right after the break. 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. You maniac! You blow it up! On News 95.5 at AM 750, WSB. We are back. I am going to go to some calls. I'm going to go to Frank in Woodstock. Frank, you are on with Monica. Hey, Monica. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Well, other than our sovereign debt, I'm doing okay. (laughs) Personally, hopefully you're doing okay. If you mix that with, like, what's going on in this country, it can get really, it can ruin your day. Well, that's my point. Your last caller, you know, makes a great point about term limits. And, yeah, I'll be 62 in October, so if I want to, I can go ahead and do my little whatever token for all the hundreds of thousands of dollars I paid in the Social Security in my lifetime. But that's just part of it. We'll call the $22 trillion the, the elephant in the room, right? Yep. But, but what about the $135 trillion in unfunded liabilities in Social Security and Medicaid? They're both getting ready to go installment. Yeah, it's I did see that. We... Elephant room. It's, like, yeah. it's eight elephants in the room. And they're, they're, it's like uh, they're alcoholics or something. They're in denial. Well, or they have a plan. Not. Well, yeah, they're going to probably dissolve the dollar to zero. Or, or just bankrupt the company. Just, you know, like, oh, I'm sorry, the dollar's not worth anything anymore. Or they're probably, I mean, I assume that they're going to make Social Security means-tested so that everybody who paid in the most get nothing. Oh, boy. That's what I think, is that the people who actually paid in the most are going to be completely so, barred yeah, from in other receiving. Words, you're going to say, even, uh, even now, as I can go ahead and opt and take and literally, you know, four months or something, they're just going to mean test it one year from now, five years from now, say, oh, well, you paid the most in, so you get the least amount coming back. Yeah, I don't know. I would take as much up front as I possibly could because I just, I'm not counting on it. Well, that's my whole thing. It's like, it's almost like they're in Senate. And then you can only, if you take earlier time, you can only make $18,000 or $19,000 a year, which, they would. They should want you to make five hundred thousand a year, so you can pay those state taxes at the whatever the one forty level, and keep the system going. But they penalize you if you make peanuts twenty grand a year. Yeah, it's really weird. First of all, it's totally regressive because they take it out. No, even if you really can't afford to pay taxes, hopefully you get it back. But it's also it's it's funny because in the communist era or the pre-identity era. The, the tragedy, the thing that you were trying to overcome was poverty. And now it's literally the second you get out of it, you are penalized and demonized. So I guess when they switch from the economic Marxism to cultural Marxism, there is no getting out of your own identity. But why identity in itself is something uh, political, to me, it doesn't make any sense if it's not tied to actual suffering or um, the levers of compassion. It's very strange. So um, I want to get to this Antifa stuff. This is Monica Perez, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Back in a sec. Please take my hand. 
your mind to me. Please. Open your mind. Open your mind. Open your mind. This is Monica Perez, your libertarian voice on News 95.5 and AM 750 WSB every Saturday from 3 to 6. We are... What I really want to focus on is Biden's announcement this week. Not only that he announced to, that he wanted to run for president, but how he announced it, what he chose to focus on, the way he chose to couch that. I want to get into that. Uh, we did um, in the earlier segment, last half hour, uh, I there was a tweet I highlighted. Binkley, my producer here. Do you have that tweet? Read it to me. Yes, this is from... Mon De Will, it says, besides the measly tax cuts, Trump's policies are like Obama's, foreign and domestic. Or if Obama had a third term, it would be pretty indistinguishable from right now. I think that that's a very provocative tweet. I was asking, what's Obama's legacy? What's Trump's legacy? And I know a lot of listeners probably think that's crazy to think that Obama and Trump might have similar legacies. But for if you think about the very big picture about ever increasing welfare warfare super state and even i think uh doing the bidding of the globalists what my father used to call the one worlders to increase surveillance censorship i think i called obama the surveillance president trump is the censorship president and they're both going to the same place they're both going to centralized power now maybe there are competing factions at the top as who's going to take the reins of that power and maybe one faction is willing to have a looser hold on the reins just to get more buy-in that is possible uh i defer sometimes i respect Tariq's opinion an earlier caller so he does think there are two factions up there i'm not so sure but There have to be always competing interests. People do want more for themselves. But I I feel like all the big players and the parties, all the elected people in Washington, kind of uh, nobody's real. Well, some people are. Amash and Massey are working against it. But most people, I think, are feeding the beast of centralization, whether it's at the top federally or at the top in a one world sense. Uh, but one of the levers they use, of course, is this uh, is the conflict among us, whether it's left or right, red or blue, if it's uh, racial or sexual orientation or whatever it is that they try to use to divide us. Well, so we don't look at what's going on up there. I think Biden's announcement plays into that wholeheartedly. And I also think the next caller, Byron, uh, has something that also plays into it. Byron, you are on with Monica. Hi, Monica. Uh, glad to uh, glad to be on the air finally. Uh, a couple things, uh, if I could, I wanted to touch on real briefly. One, in terms of uh, Obama's legacy, um, you know, I I think I feel that he tried to manufacture his legacy in a lot of ways, and it, it reeked of desperation. If you look at the uh, the Iran deal, or even the way that the ACA got pushed through, it just seemed like he was just trying to manufacture something that he would be remembered uh, for that wasn't very effective. So that's that's kind of how I think about when I think back on the Obama presidency. Yeah, that's I do, interesting. I do, 
Because there's I a lot of strong arming and there's also a lot of executive orders and that kind of thing exactly. that make, yeah, shoehorns it into this uh, image of a great achievement, but behind, you know, but it's two dimensional, maybe not going to last. A- absolutely. And I, and I absolutely agree that when you look at Republicans and Democrats, they are a lot more similar than they are different in the, in the big picture. So I, I absolutely agree with that. The other thing that I wanted to touch on with you is uh, I love your website, by the way. I love the fact that you have a glossary that goes over a lot of the uh, recurring themes in your broadcast. And I wanted to make a suggestion of, <laughs> of a term that I've been using with my friends to add to your website. Yeah, I'm dying so, to have it because I think it's fun to crowdsource the glossary. So I try. I feel like if you if there's a word for it, they, this this is like an old thing. They hijack language, they change the meaning of words. But if there's a word for something, I'll say it to my kids. Like I'll try to explain to them some principle of political manipulation. They're like, yeah, yeah, you're paranoid. And then I'll say they call it blah blah blah, and the kids are like, oh really? I'm like, yeah, it's a thing. It's a thing because there's a word for it. <laughs> so anything that there's a thing and you have a word for it. Bring it to me. So bring it to me, Byron. All right. Try this one on for size. Method activism. So let me let me define it. I'll give you a couple examples. So the the act of embellishing or narrating what has transpired in an incident that was created or initiated and recorded by one of the parties in the incident or a bystander with the goal of furthering a political or ideological narrative by publishing the footage online. So you see all these videos where uh, where it goes up on YouTube and the person in the video says, hey, why don't you say to me what you said to me before I started recording when you said when you called me a blank or whatever it was. Yeah. And then obviously the big example is the, you know, the, the Starbucks videos when the people, these guys knew the cameras were, were rolling and they they tried to make it into uh into the narrative that it actually became so uh why don't you try that for size and, and feel free to, uh, to yeah uh, that's great i love that that's <laughs> such a fantastic because it works on so many levels method activism because it is acting and and it, it's so uh manipulated and it's great to identify it as a technique and a tactic so that you can recognize it and you can laugh at it it diffuses it if you if you can uh, call it out for what it is in a way that people just recognize immediately. Oh, yeah, that's controlled opposition. That's a method activist. And I think it, it it folds in completely with what we're going to turn to next. Thanks so much for calling, Byron. Your good support. Uh, right. and, Thanks, uh, Monica. Yeah, keep in touch. So, um, and anybody who wants to, you can go to my website, MonicaPerezShow.com, and email me this kind of submission or call in. Or if you tweet at Monica Perez Show, it's super fun. I'm, uh, I have such a huge glossary now, and just perusing it is really funny. It's just like, oh, that's the best. And then I usually have links, and you can see where it comes from, give examples of it. Although after the WordPress purge, I lost so much of my media, like the videos and the pictures and everything. I do have, like, the raw text, and I'm very happy that it is being rebuilt, but there, there was some definitely some damage done, but we're not giving up. Uh, but this this idea of method activism, I think, plays into the Charlottesville thing, which was something a lot more sinister or whatever, violent and damaging, let's say damaging than than just acting. Although in the long run, that kind of deception, that kind of falsehood to promote a policy agenda is very damaging, in my opinion, because the. We learn about 
the world, the problems, the good and bad in the world through our senses, through our observations. The older you get, the wiser you get because you have these experiences. And when uh, experience is deceitful, is manipulated, it's trying to get you to think the world is a different way from what it is. And then you're going to implement policies that do not solve the problems that you think you're trying to solve and must perforce have an ulterior motive. Because if if the thing they say they're trying to solve, they had to make up in the first place, obviously the thing they're really trying to do, they couldn't be honest about. So that goes back to Anna's call about deception being the underlying tactic in what she calls communism. But I think, but as she defined it, control by an elite. Uh, yes, I think that is correct. So the way uh, I want to get into this, the way Joe Biden announced his candidacy was a very kind of long, uh, I don't know if it was a video, I guess it was a video. A big part of it was this, a, a full minute of it was his playing into the Charlottesville idea. So I want to play clip one. I want you to think about it. And then what I want you to do is listen to what he's saying and decide if you think he's telling it straight. Do you really think his version of things is how it really happened? If you do or you do not, either way, give me a call, 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Uh, all right, so, Rachel, let us please hear clip one. Charlottesville is also home to a defining moment for this nation in the last few years. It was there in August of 2017 we saw Klansmen and white supremacists and neo-Nazis come out in the open. Their crazed faces, illuminated by torches, veins bulging, and burying the fangs of racism, chanting the same anti-Semitic bile heard across Europe in the 30s. And they were met by a courageous group of Americans in a violent clash ensued. And a brave young woman lost her life. And that's when we heard the words of the President of the United States that stunned the world and shocked the conscience of this nation. He said there were, quote, some very fine people on both sides. Very fine people on both sides? With those words, the President of the United States assigned a moral equivalence between those spreading hate and those with the courage to stand against it. So let that sink in. Let that sink in the imagery and the counter imagery. I want you to tell me what you think about Biden's assessment of it. 404-872-0750, 1-800-WSB-TALK. Uh, you can tweet at me at Monica Perez Show, but I'd rather if you call. Then after this break, we're going to take a quick break, and then uh, we're going to dig into that. I'll play it again probably at the bottom of the hour. I want to play what Trump actually said, but I want to dig into, uh, into this Biden clip. I want you to, I want to hear your calls too. This is Monica Perez. Uh, we're back. It's Monica. I, um, thank you very much for that, uh, traffic update. I, so we're talking about what Biden said to announce his run and, uh, I'm going to play it again at the bottom of the hour. But it really paints a picture of Charlottesville that um, I think might be one-sided in its opinion. But Charlottesville is a very 
tricky subject. So I want to, uh, I have a very specific point I want to make at the bottom of the hour, but I wanted to know if you think that what Biden just said was correct. Uh, let me go to James. James and Monroe, you're on with Monica. Hello? Hey, James, you're on with Monica. Hey, uh, Monica, I'm actually Monroe. I'm, I'm sorry. Okay. Okay, but, sorry about uh, that. I really think that uh, uh, Biden misinterpreted. Ah, James, James, you got to hold on. They've got more breaking news. Please. Monica Perez. Well, no one's going to top that. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. I am your libertarian voice on WSB Saturdays from 3 to 6 in the home stretch, but still so much to cover. I had cut off James in the middle of his uh, comment. So I'm going back to James. Thank you so much for your patience. Okay, so the question was, when Biden made his announcement speech, he uh, really painted a picture, literally said, like, fang-bearing <laughs> um, Klan members or neo-Nazis or whatever at Charlottesville up against some, quote, courageous Americans and a violent clash ensued. So I want to talk about if you think his depiction of that event was accurate. So go ahead, James. Thank you. Thank you uh, again, Monica. I, I think he was I think he was totally wrong on that, because if you go back and you look at that, that was a permitted mod. That was a committed. I mean, they had a permit to demonstrate. And I think what the president was saying was that there were good people on both sides, on both sides. Of the argument that were good people that was for the monument, in which I'm, I was for the monument, and Why? there were good people against Why were you for the, the monument. monument. Why? I'm sorry. Why were you for the monument? Well, I'm. A, of course, you probably know by now. I am a black man. So if you take the monument down, we will never get any more monument. We will never take our place. You see, by them taking all of those monuments down, that means they're not going to put any more up. The last one we probably would get put up would be Martin the King. There will be no more. And I think that that was a stain on our history, even though it was bad. All of that was bad stuff. But that is how we got to be the country that we are. I want to tell you, James, I want to continue to hear what you have to say, but I want to tell you, I've given this a lot of thought and I have an insight that I, I didn't know, I, you know, it was hard for me to put my finger on why I'm not in favor of removing such monuments. And this is my thinking that Robert E. Lee specifically had, he was a man of his time in the context of his time. He recognized uh -huh. the issue. He he represents, as we look back, how people struggled with that issue and a more sophisticated, complicated sense of nationhood, loyalty, a transitioning economy from what was inherently an immoral system to a better system and how that's affected and that affected. And then I compare that. Would you keep up a uh, statue of Hitler? And I wouldn't because Hitler was dishonest and deceptive about the atrocities he was committing, which, if judged by his day, honestly, they would never have put statues up to him in the first place. So so if you and then if you go back and why do we need to look at history in context? And I look at the abortion issue. 
which when you read stuff about abortion, how like it really will impair progress if you don't have it. And these are not really human beings. I'm not even opining on that, but you can go back and read contemporary writings about slavery and colonialism and imperialism and indigenous peoples and find the same stuff. You're going to hold back progress. They're not really human. And you can either judge those people. If you think of your position on such issues today and you think someone will be looking back on me. And can I say that I am objectively right or wrong, that I am a victim of my time? I need to look at this in a broader context than just the here and now, because history will judge me. I think that having that judgment of history, that perspective helps us understand that we will be held to a higher standard and we should not fall for these political uh, BS arguments in the real time. You need to search your soul because St. Peter's really going to be the judge or history or however you think of it. So I, I really have come down on that. And then I'm not trying to talk your ear off, but I noticed in today's in uh, this week's Wall Street Journal, one of them, in this very thing about Biden bid fuels debate over Obama legacy, which is one of the resources that I wanted to use for this conversation, I happened to stumble upon uh, Rep, uh, Representative Ro Khanna, from, a Democrat from California, said, uh, I would judge, they talk about Obama's policies, and some people think that he did not... Uh, forward the progressive movement enough. And this guy said, I would judge him very well in the context of his time. And I would say, are, is that the standard we're using? Because if it is, then we can go back and look at these monuments in the context of our time. But that's not what people are calling for. I'm sorry. I just had to get that out because I really felt it was um, an insight. And, and I want your reaction. I want to hear the rest of what you had to say. Well, yes. And I, and I understand your position, but, but going back, I do, I, I, I do think he misinterpreted what the president said. I think what he was saying again was there were two people on both sides of that argument. Yeah. But, but right. going back to, to Joe Biden, I really can't figure out why he got in the race because he is not really. But I'm 69 years old, so I remember his first run for president. I remember his second run for president, <laughs> and he didn't do well in either one of them. Hmm. And so I don't understand really what he's trying to accomplish now. If he had really wanted to be president, he would have ran right after Obama's time was up. But right now, the only thing that he's running on is hate Trump, and he wants everybody to think he's going to be the adult in the room. Yeah. I think it's futile, and he's just out there to knock somebody else out of the race. Maybe. Or maybe he's taking a victory lap. That thought occurred to me. He can use the campaign money to travel around and be feted, being wined and dined. But now that you mentioned it, let's let us play what Trump actually said. Let's listen to what Trump actually said at the time. Uh, let's hear clip five, Rachel, if you don't mind. You had some very bad people in that group, but you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group. Excuse me. Excuse me. I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. Yeah, so he didn't, I mean, this narrative of the moral equivalence is, uh, I mean, Biden... Biden made more of a moral argument 
than than Trump did. And I, I Binkley has some like smoking gun stuff about Antifa at that event that I want to hear. And then I want to replay what Biden said about if these are the courageous Americans he was talking about. Let's hear from Binkley why Antifa, uh, how the police described Antifa. What is this document here, Binkley? This is an independent review of the 2017 protest in Charlottesville, Virginia, from this is on policefoundation.org. Okay. And and this is so what okay, go ahead, read it. One of the passages says law enforcement personnel immediately not- noticed Antifa's sophisticated sophisticated level of organization. Lieutenant Hatter observed that Antifa coordinated with local activists, had logistics and medical support, and figured out the Klan's entrance location to the park. Listen, so the Klan – I, I doubt they had to figure it out because there's plenty of evidence that the Klan has been uh, infiltrated by the FBI just like the like militia movements were around the Oklahoma City bombing time. Like there's a lot of uh, – they they would have to even if they're in good faith acting they infiltrate these organizations so that they can prevent them from doing bad things ostensibly but in any case they are highly infiltrated they don't have to you know it's more likely that this was coordinated i think behind the scenes yeah the you know, guy coordinated not figured out right the guy that got the permit kessler voted for obama in 2008 keep reading Lieutenant O'Donnell spoke with a street medic who revealed that she had protested at Standing Rock, South Dakota, for eight months uh, before arriving in Charlottesville. At 2.15, Antifa was spotted wearing gas mask, padding clothing, and body armor. Captain Shiflett recalled being surprised at the planning by some counter-protesters who brought organized medics, used walkie-talkies to share information, and wore helmets, full body pads, gas mask, and shields. Lieutenant Duane observed counter-protesters actively monitoring scanners and other devices to track the movements and communication of the, of the police. Now, that's very interesting to me because you can look at the state. Did they really come prepared like that because they thought their mere presence by innocently, nonviolently standing there, they were going to, to need body armor against uh, these protesters? I don't know, but... It's a tell, this walkie-talkie thing following the movements of the police because of something that you've told us before, and you sent me like a flyer of it, that their their stated policy is antagonism towards the police, right? Yes. They're yeah, so, unity principles. Yeah, so this all is totally consistent with the stuff that you have brought to us before about Antifa and how they operate. They're lawless. They... Um, the reason perhaps the police were uh, recorded as kind of taking a back seat here is that they were overwhelmed by what was happening around them because there was, as you mentioned, permitted activists there. Now, I can't – I don't want to get into that guy. That story is like kind of fishy and yeah. fed into a dialectical kind of thing that – a mainstream conspiracy theory, which I yeah, never yeah. trust. Yeah, so that you have people in the mainstream saying there was an agent provocateur, controlled opposition with the paper trail as long as your arm. To me, right. that's like an Easter egg that you're meant to be meant to be found. Um, so I don't want to get into who was on the right. I don't want to get into who sparked this, because for all I know, they just did that to get this thing going. Yeah, yeah. And uh, but my point is 
that all this talk about Trump saying there's moral equivalents, of course there were good people on both sides and bad people on both sides. If there was one good person on both sides and one bad person on both sides, you it's, you know, there had to have been or there would be no sympathy. Exactly. You know, it has to be ambiguous. It has to be something that you can interpret either way or they couldn't get adamant people to stand adamantly on their sides. So they have to make it so that you could interpret either side the way you want to. But oh, but Biden really, I think, threw down the gauntlet of moralizing when he said that these were just courageous Americans. And and the stuff about the fangs, that's pretty good. It, yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up with a call after the break. This is Monica Perez. Monica Perez. Wow, that was intense. On News 95.5 at AM 750 WSB. Intense. I am going to give Bobby in Smyrna the last word. Hey, Bobby, you're on with Monica. Hey, I just want to talk about fiscal responsibility. You mentioned Biden and Trump. I don't think that one man is going to be able to uh, work with all the issues in the United States. I agree totally. And that's why I feel like we should keep the separation of powers. We should have the executive jammed into the executive to execute. And I, I believe that that really goes to the legacy of Obama and now being carried on by Trump is that when he couldn't get things done, like when Byron called earlier, he uh, and pointed out that these things were strong armed and shoehorned and put in by executive order. And now Trump kind of does the same thing. And and it just is going to get worse. I mean, I think it's bad that the Supreme Court is uh, allowed to kind of trump uh, states rights to nullify congressional overreach. But the executive branch also takes over legislative stuff. It's really it's it's getting unwieldy, I must say. So, um, Binkley, I feel I totally wanted to replay that Biden clip, but I don't think we have time. That's always happens. Should we carry this on to the podcast? I think we did that last week and I thought it worked really well. Yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot about this subject that we could go into. Yes. So here we have uh, the this show we post on thepropreport.com on Wednesday mornings, commercial free. And on Thursday, we post our podcast, The Propaganda Report. And uh, so you can kind of get it back to back. So we should finish with this. There's a lot more of um, what Biden has to say and playing into this dialectic that we're going to get to. Then uh, I will be back. Uh, next Saturday, regular time, 3 to 6. This is Monica Perez.